0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with a simple goal of following Jesus together, and we hope this message helps you in doing just that. The reading today is Jonah 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to foresaw by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you probably heard or read the story of Jonah for the very, very first time, you might expect the story to end in chapter 3. The story at that point, it's it tells the story of a reluctant prophet who runs from the call of God to preach to the people of Nineveh, and yet God intervenes in the midst of his running, and God provides a storm and this gigantic fish to make sure that Jonah actually goes to Nineveh, and in the midst of being in that fish, Jonah has this awakening, and he remembers God, and he commits himself to God's plan, and so he shows up to Nineveh preaches this message, the people turn their ways and God forgives them. And you would think that that would be the end. But the story goes on. It's interesting. I was even reading a kid's version of this uh, story and it actually did end in, at, at Jonah 3. Because in this last chapter, it's kind of bizarre. Even the way it ended, it just kind of stops. This story is so much more than just what Jonah 1, 2, and 3 have to say. This, this story has a deeper purpose This prophetic writing is trying to point at something different than just telling the story about how this nation repents and God forgives. Last week, Andrew Feik gave uh, the sermon on Jonah chapter three, and he talked about how Jonah was in Nineveh and he finally, finally preaches this message. And in Hebrew, uh, the message, the sermon that Jonah gives is just five words. Just five words is all he says, and he says this. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was it. Which is funny because after you've read Jonah chapter three or chapter two, he composed this beautiful poem, like just this exhaustive, beautiful writing. His showing his ability to use and craft words, and here in this finally gives this message: just five measly words, pretty much saying forty days and it is over. As Andrew Andrew pointed out, what was missing from that message right there? What would be missing? Well, there's no mention of their error or their sin or why this was about to happen. There's no sense of hope or a call of turning to God. And furthermore, what's the greatest thing that's missing from this? Any mention of God at all. It's almost as if Jonah is if trying to do the absolute least required. Uh, one, one scholar called this prophetic sabotage, <laughs> like trying to do the absolute least to make sure that the message wasn't fully heard and wasn't really that compelling. Yet, there's something beautiful going on in the words that Jonah says. And the writer is doing something... Uh, absolutely genius and absolutely beautiful. If you remember, look at these words, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That last word, that word overthrown, it's, it's actually a beautiful word. I don't think Jonah really knew what the meaning behind the words that he had said. That word to be overthrown is, uh, is a unique word. In, in our language, we call them contronyms, a word that has two, very, two meanings that have actually the opposite The opposite purpose. A contronym could be one extreme uh, idea or the other. It just matters what context it's in. So, for instance, a contronym for us in our language is the the verb to dust. So maybe right now you're getting ready for Thanksgiving, family's coming in town, and you're dusting your house, trying to remove all the dust from your home. Meanwhile, someone's in the kitchen with final steps on their cake, and they're dusting their cake with powdered sugar. One idea is to remove it. The other idea is to add it. Uh, This word, to be overthrown, is a contronym. Two very different meanings. The word literally means to flip over. So imagine like you're making a tortilla. (laughs) You cook it one side, and then you flip it over. That's what this word is actually literally saying. And Jonah thought he was saying, in 40 days from now, and God is going to take Nineveh and destroy it, flip it upside down. But there's another meaning to this word that maybe Jonah doesn't realize could come true. It's this word to actually restore, to flip it right side up. So for instance, in Jeremiah 31, we find this exact word there, that God turned my mourning into dancing. That's that same exact word in Hebrew. What this word is being used to say is, God took my mourning and then flipped it upside down, now I am dancing. This is actually what happened in Jonah. That 40 days in Nineveh was flipped upside down. It was flipped around. And Jonah 3 ends with these words, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them destruction that he had threatened. What's beautiful about Jonah's words is they actually, they actually came true. That it actually was restored. God flipped it over and restored Nineveh, forgave Nineveh. Forty days and God flipped over God's judgment and gave forgiveness. I think this notion of being flipped upside down is actually a great theme for understanding the book of Jonah. It actually unlocks a lot of incredible things about it. For the people of Nineveh, they flipped over their ways, evil ways, for a while. God turns over his wrath into forgiveness. And then the rest of this book, the rest of this story is God trying to flip over over Jonah's perspective. to Have Jonah see things differently, in particular how God exercises grace and forgiveness. So back now in chapter 4, we pick it up where Jonah responds to this, act of divine forgiveness that God had done at the end of chapter three. And chapter four begins with this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Like this idea of forgiveness made no sense to Jonah. These people were bad. You can almost hear Jonah's inner dialogue with God. Come on, God. Those people are killing and attacking your people. You should not forgive them. You should destroy them. This seems bad to me. And then we finally see what's going on underneath the surface from the very beginning. If you remember back in chapter one, in the very first week, we talked about Jonah. It was interesting that at the call of, that God gave Jonah to, to preach to the, to the people of Nineveh, that Jonah just fled. And what was interesting was in the book, the writing, it gave no reason why Jonah fled. It just said that Jonah heard this calling from God to preach to the people of Nineveh, and he ran. He went to the absolute opposite direction. And finally here, three chapters later, we finally have the answer of why he ran. Was it that he doubted himself as a prophet? Was it that he was afraid of persecution or violence? The answer is no. It was something else altogether. In verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is, why, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a an gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Like that's the reason why he ran. And then Jonah said, Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me than to die than to live. So why did Jonah run to begin with? He was afraid that God would forgive. He couldn't stand that idea. So Jonah was run, wasn't running for his life. He was running from a life where Jonah would see God extend forgiveness to his enemies. He did not want to live in that world, and so he ran. This week I actually discovered a book of poetry, Um, written in 1968 by a guy named Thomas Carlyle, and I found the poetry beautiful. Uh, It's a a book of poetry called You, Jonah, and there is a poem that he wrote in reflection about this right here, a poem called Tantrum. So can we just put on our coffee shop mentality and just hear a poem? Are we okay with that? I just thought this was beautiful. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despite, despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't try to forgive me either. Jonah knew what God would do. Jonah knew that God would forgive. What do you do when the breadth of God's love includes who you're against? That's why this book wasn't over with at chapter three. This story needed to go on. What, this for me is what I call the underside of God's forgiveness. <laughs> It's the underbelly of God's forgiveness. What do you do when you realize that God isn't against the people who you are against? Well, for Jonah, he would rather die. He would rather die than see his God become their God. He would rather not live in that world. No way. In the tragic humor, as we read this book, the tragic humor of this passage is that Jonah takes some of the most beautiful most wonderful aspects of who God is and flips it around, despises them. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love as he's gritting his teeth. Jonah takes these attributes in which we appreciate and turns them around. These words for Jonah, this is important for us to know, it might be lost on us. But people who this, originally received this book, they would have known this. That these words that Jonah is actually saying here, they're actually a quote. It's a quote from Scripture. All throughout the Old Testament, these words, these descriptions of God are said over and over and over again. These are words that would become prayers of the people of Israel. These are words that became psalms in which they would recite and sing to one another. And it's a place of great delight. And Jonah doesn't want these words, he doesn't want them to be true for them. So if you would let me, can I just geek out a little bit with Scripture, just for a little bit? I think it might be worth it for some of you, maybe not for all, but that's all right. I'm just going to geek out for a little bit. When something's repeated over and over in Scripture, what's interesting is to find out the first time they were ever spoken in this phrase that Jonah is quoting here about speaking about how God's gracious and compassionate slow to anger and bounding love the first time it's 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 said is really powerful it is right after that God in Exodus had freed and delivered the nation of uh, the people the hebrew nation from Egypt they crossed over the red sea they went through the wilderness and they meet with God in Mount Sinai. There, God calls Moses to come up to the mountain and receive the Ten Commandments. Remember Easter, that movie? What was his name? Charlton Heston, something like that? Generation Gap? Okay, cool. Um, He goes up in the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, but he was gone for a while, and people didn't know what to do, and so they got bored, or maybe they doubted, and so they crafted these golden idols and began worshiping them. Even though God, like literally, had just rescued them in power and might, and they turned from God and began worshiping these idols, Moses comes down, sees the craziness of what's happening, and then shatters the Ten Commandments. But then, God calls Moses back up to the mountain, and God gives them. Uh, Moses gives the uh, has the Ten Commandments again, and then this happens. This is Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up the mountain, Mount Sinai early in the morning. As the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. So God is declaring his own name. It's not Moses is declaring who God is. God is now speaking his own name and that is a big deal. The understanding of that God declaring his name is that God is, God is making himself known. He's displaying his character. He's revealing his power. He's declaring who he would be. And this is where we find this word. When the word Lord is there like that, it's the, the actual word is Yahweh, which is like this relational name that God gives himself. And the, the actual translation of it is I am who I am. That is my name. I am who I am. Another way to understand it is God also saying, I will be who I will be. That is God declaring his name. And then, as uh, as he passes in front of Moses, this is verse 6, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, I am who I am. I am who I am. I am compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the first time this phrase was ever spoken, first time this phrase was ever recorded, and it was directly after Israel's reckless abandonment of God. And then God declares, I am who I am, and who am I? Compassionate slow to anger, gracious, I am abounding in love. And these would be the words that this nation repeats over and over again to each other that this is who God is. This is God's power. This is God's character. They would claim it in hard times. They would claim it in their worship, in their quiet prayers, in moments of delight. They would declare that this is who God was and this is who God will be. And that phrase is scattered throughout the Old Testament as a place of joy and delight. But not here in Jonah chapter 4. This God of forgiveness is not what uh, what Jonah would choose. Why? Because God is not just compassionate and bounding in love and forgiving to Israel, but also to Nineveh. The worst people on the planet. Their enemies. It's hard when the limits we put on God's love are completely ignored by God. That's what Jonah is dealing here. He's so angry about this, and he wants to die. And then God is almost like this therapist meets Jonah, not with contempt. Jonah Jonah is, he's obstinate, but God still is gracious and slow to anger with Jonah. And this is how God responds. God offers Jonah a simple question. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Do you have the right to be angry that I am who I am? And instead of answering this question, Jonah just storms off. The next part of this story for me is the absolute most bizarre part. Yes, more bizarre than being swallowed and vomited by a fish. Because Jonah now, there's like this weird symbolic experience happening. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade, waiting to see what would happen to the city. He's still holding out hope that God might destroy it. He's like, maybe, maybe, just maybe. But instead, now God is less focused on Nineveh and more focused on Jonah. Jonah's hardened heart. And heart. So as Jonah's there waiting and watching, God provided, notice that word provided, we talked about how that word is, is, um, is used throughout this story, that God provided a leafy plant to provide shade. And for the first time in this story, Jonah is happy because he has shade. Ah! And then the next day, God provided, that word again, provided a worm to eat the plant. And then God provided a scorching wind and this not only angered Jonah, but angered him so much that he again wants to die. I'm better off dead. What in the world was God doing with this? What in the world is this, is this writing doing with this? It's drawing something out of Jonah. It was trying to change Jonah's perspective. In verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Nearly the same question was just asked a couple of verses before. Now he's asking about this plant. Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And Jonah said, it is, I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But then the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The end. The end. That's the end of the story. It's like, almost like, you know, that experience when you're watching a movie, and you're like, oh, this is interesting, and then all of a sudden the screen goes black, and the credits roll, and you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, got too many questions. You can't do it like that. How does it end? It's almost like, it's almost as if God is making this abrupt ending to kind of jar us, to think how, wait, wait, that can't be the end of the story. How, how would the story how should the story end? What about Jonah? Like would Jonah change his heart? Does his mindset ever change? Does his stubbornness actually melt away? Would he finally get it? And I think the reason why this book is a beautiful book of pro- prophecy is that the most important question is not if Jonah gets it, but if you get it. If we get it, if I get it. Do we should God not be concerned with the enemies in our life? Should God not care? That is the important question that this story is leaving us with. Is it right to be angry when God's grace extends much further than you would ever wish? When we see God's transforming power start to include those whom we despise? Again, a poem from that book, You, Jonah. This poem's called Coming Around. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonah's in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Are we ready to come around to God's way of loving? And that's what this whole story is about. Everything that God provided Jonah, everything he provided him, the storm, the whale, the shade, the worm, the wind, all of these things that God provided were God's attempt of providing a way for Jonah to come around to God's way of loving. All of this was God's attempt to try to flip over over Jonah's mindset, his heart set, and for him to see and love in a different way to come around to a different way of loving, not the small type of love that would be reserved for only Jonah's people, but the breadth of God's love that would be extended to anyone who would turn to him. That's the breadth of God's love. And this, I think, is such a beautiful and timely message for us today. It feels like every week I'm getting some article in my, in my news feed about the amount of contention that we have in our culture today. It's not only that our our culture is incredibly polarized, but it is the amount of bitterness and rage that we just have for one another, the ability we have of lobbing emotional grenades at one another. And just to help us out with this story, this story is coming at us in a very contentious week, and good luck. There's Thanksgiving, so we're going to see our extended family. Are we ready for that? You know? (laughs) Jonah is a timely word for us because I think it's challenging us in how we treat and love others, especially the other, them, whoever them is. It's amazing how much we long to categorize people to figure out if they're on our side or if they're on their side. I mean, maybe you've had this experience that I've had recently where you're you're visiting with an acquaintance or a friend and things are going great and then somehow maybe intentionally or unintentionally you tip your hat towards a belief a thought a conviction and you almost see it in that person's face of going oh and like you almost see that like the crane pick you up and from one box and drop you in the other oh i didn't realize that you're one of them (laughs) am i alone in that experience And I know we're all tempted to do this, attempting to categorize this world of us and them, our tribe and their tribe. And maybe we do it so we don't feel alone. Maybe we do it so we feel like we're not alone in having these boxes and these beliefs. And we even feel the experience of unity that comes when you have others, you're part of a tribe that, that despises the same people. And you form these sorts of groups and what gets even more dangerous is all of a sudden we also invite God into our tribe. And God's against that tribe. God's against that people. And Jonah is a word of warning. Do not be surprised if God steps into our contentious tribalism that we live in and starts flipping things upside down. Don't be surprised if God were to go to those whom you wish the grace and mercy did not extend that far. And, and God takes five more steps, ten more steps, twenty more steps. This is how, ultimately how God did that. Jesus spent his entire life loving, going to every group that was not included in the right tribe And he loved them, he served them, he healed them, he walked with them, he knew them, he received them, and then he looked at his followers and said, you know you're supposed to love your God, but I'm giving you a new commandment. I want you to love your enemy. I want you to love your enemy. And then Jesus, after that, he laid himself on a cross and he showed us that he meant business. That This would be the way of Jesus. And the cross of Jesus flipped this world upside down. No longer can we hate those whom deserve our hate. Jesus says that endless cycle of bitterness and hatred and violence, it ends at the cross. And the cross is Jesus' ultimate demonstration that the great I Am is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love that our crucified Savior is the great I am, displaying perfectly God's character and power. But this is the kicker for us. The salvation you receive at the cross is not merely when you receive forgiveness from Jesus, but there's another salvation that the cross gives us. We will find deeper salvation when you have learned to give and extend that forgiveness to your enemy. This is how the kingdom that Jesus established is extended to this world. But if our lives are fixated with our tribalism, our God continues to become smaller and smaller and more controllable, and God is so much more than that. I think this book of ancient prophecy is calling us out. It's calling us to allow God to flip over this world's perspective, that we as followers of Jesus, we need to live in a different way We know and follow a Savior who again and again goes to those who are declared His enemy and wins them over with love and mercy. Are you ready for that to happen in your life? Be prepared. The story is teaching us that God will provide a way.